But I think there's been this fear that exercise is somehow going to be dangerous. Uh, and it's quite the contrary. After that first day, when they say you have cancer, there's a new person born. You know, there's this thing called new normal. I, th I think they don't really maybe understand how much it's going to help them. Each patient and each survivor is going to be experiencing different side effects, different experiences. The positive is that it's, it's never too late. Welcome to the REACH podcast, where you'll hear from researchers, doctors and patients themselves on how exercise, nutrition and lifestyle behaviors can reduce cancer risk and improve survivorship. I'm your host, Kieran Fairman. Hey, welcome back to another episode of the REACH podcast. Uh, this episode is cool for a couple of reasons. Firstly, uh, we reached episode 40, uh, which is really cool for me, a good uh, kind of milestone. Um, I've been getting continuous feedback and really good feedback on the show and the different types of, of guests I've been having and kind of a combination about research and personal experience. So to, to make it to, to 40 episodes and kind of combining that with everything else I've got going on is... Uh, really cool for me um, the other thing that makes this episode really cool is that I've got uh, our first kind of podcast where I had two other guests on at the same time so I have Mark Corrado who you might remember from way back episode two or three on the show and I've also got Dr. Chris Fink who's an associate professor at Ohio Wesleyan um, and the reason that's cool is well one I didn't know if the technology was going to work and you actually will hear the microphone shuffle a little bit between guests but uh, Chris invited me out to talk to his class um, at Ohio Wesleyan a couple of years ago um, to talk about our field of research and, and what we do, but it was part of a bigger project he was doing um, for a qualitative research class in this university where he got uh, practitioners, he got oncologists, and he got patients to give this uh, kind of multi-pronged perspective on what it's like uh, to go through treatment to to have this kind of uh, treatment and survivorship experience and that was actually one of the catalysts for me to start the podcast so it was really cool to to tell Chris that and and uh, kind of uh, pay homage to to him for starting this idea in my head um, and today it was kind of just a an overview or a general chat and a kind of global perspective on the whole experience. We talk a lot about what happened in Chris's class and the different guests he had in and what they learned. Um, Mark always provides a phenomenal perspective as a patient and a uh, former patient and survivor himself, um, but also some really cool uh, or interesting um, kind of dynamics that play into uh, the survivorship role and, and overall healthy living and obesity, things like that. Uh, Chris touches on things like the way our environment and, and uh, uh, culture is set up, cultural differences with eating and, and different dynamics like that versus the way the, the infrastructure society, particularly in the US, makes it difficult to walk places and we've got the advent of um, click lists and different things like that where it makes it easier to do online shopping, to do grocery shopping, where we're getting less and less active as a result of both society and uh, technology and the influence of that. So really cool chat to just kind of get an overall picture. Um, no real theme, but more just kind of chatting about everything and anything got to do with uh, cancer survivorship. So it was a really cool chat for me. Um, hope you enjoy the dynamic between the three of us and uh, we'll check back in soon. So this actually is 
almost the advent of a year from when we spoke originally. Um, I have Mark and Chris here with me today. I appreciate you lads joining me. Um, Mark Corrado from episode two, I think. OG from the, the very first <laughs> uh, episodes. And uh, Chris, who is a associate, full associate professor at Ohio Wesleyan. And we'll start with Chris because I haven't told you this, but your class and what I participated in was actually one of the kind of kicking the arses that I needed to do this podcast because the theory of your class and how you structured it, I was like, that that is incredible, getting different people's perspectives and, and getting the communication out there of professionals and patients and survivors. So um, I've been waiting for this to tell you that because I <laughs> thought uh, it was just a, a really cool moment for me to be a part of that class. But um, let's kind of go back, give us a little bit of background about you um, the class you started and how you started, and then we'll go into the experiences of that. I guess, you know, I, as a faculty member researcher, I, I was sort of schooled in, in more of the behavior side of, of health behaviors, particularly exercise. Uh, that was my training. Um, but my big questions around that were always more related to people's experiences and trying to navigate the challenges of making any sort of health behavior change. And so, um, that's a better fit for qualitative research, honestly, getting those stories and, and trying to understand what connects um, to uh, theories of behavior change, but it, what makes that nuance difficult, you know, making behavior change happen is hard. Um, so uh, when I started at Ohio Wesleyan, I uh, was uh, had the chance to, to co-teach a class on qualitative research there with Nancy Knope, who um, is now retired from there. but. Uh, and uh, I, I learned a lot from her and from her approach, which was, um, at essence, there was a lot of storytelling and things that went on with that. And so that class hasn't always been focused on cancer. It was focused on um, people's experiences with, um, with food or food system change, you know, things usually around um, food up until uh, a couple of years ago when Mark and I started to talk about um, his interest in exercise and just generally in, in um, kind of I guess, preventative behaviors as they apply to, to survivorship. And um, I think he was, you were talking about developing a program, thinking about our exercise science students. Could we put something together, you know, for cancer survivors? And, and I, uh, I suggested that, well, maybe this first fall, um, we could build this into the, or next spring, we could build this into the qualitative research class. It'd be really interesting to hear from survivors or what they think they need, you know, or what they think they would like yeah. to have. Um, <clears throat> and that's kind of where that started. So it was a summer before, and then we started to talk about it. Um, How long had you two known each other? Well, I met Mark at a bookstore <laughs> <laughs> because he wanted to go to Italy or something. I don't know. I had been, um, that sounds very first date like. Yeah. <laughs> well, my wife, this is Mark, my wife owned a bookstore in town, and Chris would be hanging out. And um, right. I, I knew he spoke Italian, and we, you know, we talked about places in Italy that he worked and traveled and I've been, and yeah. I, think, I think that was the initial connection. And then we, uh, uh, he's also a cycling fan, mm. um, so we talked about professional cycling and the Tour de France and the things like that. Yeah, yeah, so we, but then, you know, I'd see him now and then in town or whatever, but uh, once the cancer diagnoses came, and then also I'd done some work with Mel, his wife, um, on some other community stuff because she's really now uh, involved in with uh, a local nonprofit that does a lot of community work and um, directs that. So, um, yeah, it's been a sort of connection for a long yeah. period of time, but it's been more recently where we, 
I think we're a lot more connected and, and share a lot of interests that have come out of this project, honestly, out of this class. So beyond the, the stuff he mentioned, which is great stuff, cycling in Italy is yeah. awfully cool. <laughs> but um, but this, this has been really meaningful for me. It's been a um, – so I shifted that, you know, from a food focus to this um, – this idea of cancer and survivorship. And for me, that didn't come out of, um, it didn't come out of any real personal experience up to that point. I, <clears throat> I think a lot of times uh, cancer catches you uh, and gets you working on something related to it because of an experience either you've had or a family member or a close friend. And, and in this case, Mark was probably the closest person that I've, I've had to that. My father-in-law um, <clears throat> had prostate cancer but um really early stage it was a surgery and i don't know he was one of these people who i guess didn't give it a lot of thought after it was over it was a small surgery and and, uh, but so this project kind of came out of an interest in connecting with what mark was so passionate about and and so what we did then was focus that the this qualitative research class um keeping in mind that they're undergraduate students too so they have very little to no extra or very little to no research background and focus on um, survivorship, uh, exercise in particular. Um, we were, I kind of thought, you know, I bet we'll hear more about what people need as a survivor than what they do with their exercise or, or yeah. you know, where they feel like they, they build that in. And, and in the end, that's, that was a lot of the discussion was around that, that experience. So, you know, my approach to qualitative research and these classes is can we better understand the experiences of people <clears throat> and the structures that influence those experiences around a topic like this? And can it be something that has a practical um, change-related goal? Not that the research itself will be developed to change something, but that that awareness or the, those stories might um, give us an idea of the next step of, of making change happen for the better for, for the people involved. So that, that, was, that was the approach, um, or that was the main concept going in. And so we brought you up early on to get the students thinking about how exercise and cancer weave together. We brought the survivorship director here at Ohio State up. Uh, she was great about coming into a small classroom at Ohio Wesleyan and talking to students, but it was really an eye-opening uh, experience. We talked to, um, you know, uh, Mark's physician uh, as well. I came down and did that and a physical therapist. So we had a lot of, you know, the, the support team discussions around um, other things that might support survivorship. And then uh, the second half of the, the semester was really about bringing in different uh, cancer survivors and getting their perspective on that experience. You know, what was the diagnosis like? What was it like from then on? Relationships, all these other things. Um, when we had, um, gosh, we had, I think, four or five, including Mark, survivors. And then we also brought in their, uh, we called them, I guess, caregivers, but family members who were uh, affected <coughs> by uh, that experience too. So we got their perspective on on these really big questions about what mattered, uh, what that experience was like to for them from the different points of time of survivorship. If we consider that survivorship starts at diagnosis, like there are a lot of different landmarks along the way, um, and we heard a lot about those over the over those interviews. Most of the interviews were about an hour and a half in length, so um, they were long. Some were tough, right? I mean, we had a couple of we ranged. I mean, uh, one of our interviewees is no longer with us. He he passed uh, last year during the year, and he kind of seemed to think that was going to happen. Uh, I just found a quote from him. Um, 
yesterday when I was going through stuff thinking about this where he said that he um, wouldn't probably wouldn't be around next year this time and it is right around this time and sure enough wow. he's not to a person who had the diagnosis and hardly talked to her husband about it ever like even up to the day that we interviewed her so yeah. um, so we had a big range in, in, the, in the in the number of people we brought in we saw a, a big range of experiences around survivorship what you're saying there with the range of experiences from the survivor's perspective and some people are really open about it some people don't like to talk about it some people use uh, comedy as, as a way of dealing with it, but also the, the kind of more global perspective of the caregivers and professionals as well. I think, you know, not just for your undergrads, but I'm sure you two, to get that perspective from all these different angles, to appreciate the, the breadth of the field. And um, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on how it's, you know, you coming in, I don't want to say ignorant, but without any prior experience personally or professionally with this area how then did you your perspective change from day one start of the semester to the end of the semester after being through all those experiences yeah I think um well I came in really with an open uh I guess as you'd want to do with qualitative research an open um perspective on what we might learn from it I I think early on our discussions around this this class, I think Mark had this idea that, you know, maybe we can hear what people would, we can hear something that would help us create maybe an exercise approach that might be really useful for survivors. And my thought was always, I want to understand survivors. That was sort of where I wanted to start um, and then see what they think is really important. So I went in with a really open, um, I guess, perspective, but some of the things that I think I, uh, I learned, you know, that I think were most most powerful were were how people develop and this was one of the the themes or sets of themes that emerged from the class was that um, this idea that uh, that cancer really does create a rebirth we were just talking about this it's it's, it's like you're a you're a you are you're the same person but you're a different person um, one person maybe it was mark i don't know called it cancer island but regardless you're now on a different um, at a different place and so while i guess i could have imagined that that would happen um i didn't i didn't understand what that must quite and how people deal with that with that what that would be like and then um within that though people um talked a lot about their um their ways of finding control inside of that setting whether they were uh three months out of diagnosis or six years past um treatment like liz you know so but everybody developed some sort of practice to gain control if they couldn't control this, they might control something else, whether it was writing or, um, um, you know, other behaviors like meditation, exercise, mm -hmm. and nutrition that might be really important in there. I think we also, I was surprised to learn that the, the, the time, if someone does finish treatment, um, that, that point where they're sort of released from the care is scarier than the diagnosis, and that's pretty universal, at least from the people we've talked about and the things that I've started to read since then. Um, I think um, there's a lot out there about survivors not liking that term. Uh, I think that was a big piece of, of our conversation. Recently, I've read uh, some things about survivorship as a craft. Um, it's a lifelong sort of craft like uh, any other ship might be, right? So I thought that was an interesting perspective. Um, but then we also, uh, we also heard a lot about how the assumption of the medical team is that longevity is your goal. 
And I don't think to a person anyone would have set that as their primary goal as a survivor. I mean, I think they wanted to be around as long as they could. But within that time, if you're, like we talked about yesterday, getting treatment up until the last days you're alive, you know, maybe that's not what you want. Uh, mm -hmm. Maybe there are other things. Or um, one of our interviewees, April, <clears throat> mentioned that she um, was really taken by the idea that if we could change the question from um, how can we keep you alive as long as possible to what do you really want to be able to do in life and how can we support that? We would probably shift the entire system, but right now it's still about um, measurable longevity and outcomes like that versus quality of life things. So in the end, the class became about quality of life and, um, and how people manage that quality of life inside of a cancer diagnosis, whether they're a day after the diagnosis or 20 years after it. You know what I mean? In quantitative research, we look at strength and body composition, things like that you don't get to develop these teams from like you do from qualitative research and getting people's experiences and what they go through and see as you said the you know i don't do qualitative research but the amount of people i've talked to it's the same teams and there's a new normal the the period where you have a lot of people focused on you right now and then you're done with treatment and then they all disappear and you're kind of isolated and figuring out what to do and how to, what's safe how to reintegrate into life those are really important parts of survivorship care that are largely left unaddressed. When you think about um, psychology and, and what we're talking about off air, it also comes back to what you were saying, Mark, where um, I interviewed a, a breast surgeon um, a few weeks ago. Liz, I'm gonna get her out in the coming weeks, but she was a breast surgeon in England, in the UK, that had breast cancer, developed breast cancer. And she talked about how in med school, they're trained to just treat and you don't really think about, you know, you've got this diagnosis, this stage, here you go. And she was like, I didn't understand what it was like to be in an MRI naked for 45 minutes or to go through what it's like to receive a diagnosis and have your friendships and relationships strained and deal with the psychology of thinking about what's going to happen. And her as a surgeon, being as educated as she knew, she was kind of black or white with the diagnosis and things like that. That's what you were saying where you can, you can talk about it so much but unless you've had a diagnosis, you really can't understand what it's like to go through it. Yeah, I mean, one, one of the revelations from this class for me uh, was seeing that kind of bright line that's drawn, that on one side of the line are oncologists, and their job, their mission is to keep you alive. And then the other side of the line, exercise physiologists, psycho-oncologists, nutritionists, um, their job is to help you live. And I think that all these cancer survivors that we talk to are interested in living, not just being kept alive. You know, uh, yesterday in class, since Chris is doing this class again, and one of the students was giving a, a report uh, using the standard, the five-year survival sh survivorship. And I just said to him, D does anybody know why we have a five-year number, you know, does that mean that surgeons, the oncologist is a success or a failure if they get you to five years? I mean, if I took these 19-year-old kids and I said, you know, you got five years, they'd say, well, that's just not enough. Yeah. You know, and so I understand what my oncologist wants to do, and that may be why he would do chemo or radiation the week I died, because he's in that automatic mode. But what I'm finding, and I think what the cl class found, is 
all these other areas where the ball's been dropped <laughs> are so much more important uh, than just being kept alive. Um, your mental health, your physical health, your, your, your sleep, your, all this stuff. It's just the, the ball's being dropped every chance that, that it can be dropped. It's funny you mentioned that. It's, it's the transfer between quantity of life versus quality of life. And what does that quantity matter if you're bedridden, receiving chemo and radiation, extensive treatment? I mean, we, uh, one of our trials in the lab is recruiting advanced cancer patients, breast cancer patients. And it's, it's difficult, you know, some people are interested, some people aren't. We had uh, a lady enroll in the trial and about four weeks in, she was like, you know, I'm, I'm a terminal patient. I've got metastatic cancer. I just want to go and live by the lake and enjoy my last time. And so we also have to be cautious of saying exercise is good for everyone. Nutrition is good for everyone. When it's, when it's people's perspective, their quality of life is so different. She, she would rather, um, you know, go to the lake, not receive treatment, potentially, you know, pass weeks or months earlier, but she's fulfilled in those last months or years or whatever and that's really important to talk sure. about too absolutely yeah i think one of our interviewees again back to april but i think she was a good example of that i mean she's not um she's not talking about how much time she has left to live but i think that her rubric for making decisions are the things that are consistent with her quality of life and some of that includes um providing legal aid to people because she's got a background as a mm -hmm. lawyer um but writing uh, these things are most important, and if she couldn't do those, she really that that wouldn't be a high quality of life for her. So when you ask her about you know her diet or exercise, um, it's not that it's just not that high on the list yeah. for her. Um, now you know if those were linked somehow more closely, or she realized that link, maybe she would be. And I think that's another piece of not asking the right questions is like you should do these things right; they're good for you. Um, and never asking, well, what, what, do you, what do you think is good for you and how can these things support that? Because that's really what they are. I mean, even my approach to health and my background in health is, and, and my sort of mantra related to health is that it's only a, a tool. These health behaviors are only tools to help you do the things you really want to do. Yeah. Some people live for nutrition. Some people live for exercise. But the, mass, the vast majority of people, they're just really useful ways to have a great life yeah. outside of doing those things and that the, that the time commitment and all that is enough. That's a huge point because, again, we get really, particularly quantitative researchers, we get really, you know, small-minded in 1RM strength or body composition. And, you know, we, we have an ongoing trial right now. One of the participants were like, it's about eight weeks in and we're like how's everything going she's like I, I feel better like i can i can walk around my kids i can climb up the stairs without being tired those are outcomes that matter to them we may be interested in your lower body strength but as you said making it relatable to their life to where it doesn't have to be this structured intensive exercise program what's the minimum we can do that fits your lifestyle that gives you the benefit that you want instead of going you know army drill sergeant you got to be in every day <laughs> doing everything you know and some people want that too so there's just so many versions of what you know people people want i think as a person who tries to promote healthy things i think that's the key to it is finding that spot where it's supporting the other goals that the person yeah. has so you know when we do our community stuff with nutrition it's not you should do this because it's we don't ever lead with this is what you should do we we lead with um, so what challenges are you having like what are you trying to get yeah. done and how can we help support that it's totally different 
it's it's a very similar I bet you end at the same spot but it's a totally different path to that spot and probably a more sustainable one so. I think it's also really underappreciated um, I mean you see it when you're teaching behavior change or teaching the psychology of exercise there still is this kind of perception that's like kind of fluff or whatever and until you get into working with patients from different pr backgrounds who don't really care about exercise physiology and you have to make it relatable to them then you see the importance of mm. having these behavior change strategies and having those motivational interviewing skills to where you can find ways right. to make it up to them but it also brings back to when i first met mark i tell people this all the time like we promote exercise it's all good and i always say you know i can help you know however way I can to try and make it fit your lifestyle. But when Mark came to me, he was already training five days a week. He's doing like 60 miles and he rode in to meet me. And <laughs> he was strength training two or three times a week in, in that basement in the office or whatever. And I was like, maybe there's a couple of exercises that you could change, but you can't do any more. You know, any more may even do damage. But I was like, there's, no, there's only so much I can give you. You're do, and he, you know, he's like, he's obsessive or what does this micronutrient do? I was like, man, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're doing all the right things in a, in a good perspective, but that's where you highlight the difference. And you, from my conversation with you, when you got that, you're like, what can I do? Every single part of my life, what can I change to make my prognosis better? Well, I mean, you know, for, I came from sort of a competitive athlete background, um, the ability to, to run through walls, you know, it's kind of stupid, but it, it makes you feel good at the end of the day. You know, when something's something, you're icing something or, or you <laughs> feel some tug on those muscles that worked out that day, you felt you accomplished something. And, you know, maybe that's not for everybody, but, um, you know, just as I've listened to a lot of these podcasts, you talked about movement and pushing the sweeper around, walking the dog, um, you know, taking your husband for a walk. Yeah. Uh, all those things are, are really part of it. It's just where do you start? You know, the, the folks that get chemo uh, and then go for a walk, but if you're a marathoner and then after your chemo, you go for a jog. It's just where you start and how you carry on from that is what I think the message should be. Um, you know, we take people at all different levels, but let's have some movement. Um, let's recognize inflammation in stress and food and exercise and know that you can do these kind of things for minimal gains, get some marginal gains, I mean, and they're going to mean a lot to your life. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it, just like you were talking about, we see it now in Ohio with the winter we had. I mean, it's it's brutal. And you as a, as a cyclist, I mean, you're taking a hit with your activity. You're going from 60 miles a week to, right. you know, you're riding indoors and trying to find ways to do that. So you intuitively as an athlete have those skills to recognize that, you know, it's the maintain maintaining my fitness and activity is more important than it's crappy outside. I'm just going to wait till spring before I go back out there. But also how we deliver the message, because I still think there's, when we say strength training or resistance training, there's a fear in we're throwing everyone under a bar and making them squat. Whereas resistance training, by definition, is training against resistance. So if you can't get out of a chair, that's your resistance, and that's how we're going to work with you, you know what I mean? And then it becomes a vicious cycle where I don't move because I hurt, and I hurt because I don't move. And it, trying to get people educated on you can actually stop that cycle through appropriate nutrition and exercise, but also being realistic with the the difficulties you're going to face. 
you know, it's easy to sell exercise and nutrition that your life's going to change without understanding that there's going to be some really deep valleys. You're going to have a lot of lows. You know, your progression isn't going to be straight up. And we teach, I mean, we, with these uh, trials we do, 18-month-long trials, and we generally do check-ins, whether it's weight or, or progression in different kinds, people will come in almost guilty about they haven't made any progression or maybe they've gone backwards a little bit. And we're going, listen, like you compared to six months ago, you're flying. So don't worry about these day-to-day -day fluctuations. The general trend is that you're improving and be, getting people to be kinder with themselves and that is really important, I think. So how do you, how do you relate to them that they have made an improvement? when they say, eh, I don't feel like I'm getting it. I mean, do you have, is there a metric? Yeah, and it depends what's important to you. You know, I mean, you could go to, you know, jump on Instagram, everyone's taking pre-post pictures. The populations we work with are not generally uh, conducive to taking pictures. Right. But we measure strength, we measure body weight, whatever metric is important to you that you deem as progress and that we're targeting. You know what I mean? If, if we're targeting aerobic capacity or whatever it is, most of our trials right now are focused on weight loss, so we'll just do a quick weigh-in once a week. So we'll see how much weight have you lost. Have you stayed the same? And people will get frustrated. Maybe they're on a plateau for two or three weeks. But then we step back and go, well, what have you done differently? Oh, well, I stopped exercising last week, and then we went to my uncle's, you know, for, for Easter or whatever. And we ate. So you kind of help them start to be more mindful and identify why their progress has slowed and appreciate that that's just life. Yeah. We, we try, You know what I mean? Right. You're going to have... You gain a couple of pounds here or there, you lost a couple of pounds here or there. We're more concerned about that long-term trend and having metrics to to pull them back. Because you know what it's like, you're making improvements and you see yourself day to day, but it's not until you look up where you were a year ago, six months ago, to, well, wow, I am. And that's important to kind of tune people back into enjoying the process of it rather than racing towards the outcome. Hmm. Absolutely. But, but again, where you're talking about small groups of people, um, you know, volunteers for your studies. Um, I can't, you know, for some reason when you are diagnosed with cancer, you become a magnet for everybody that's <laughs> <laughs> recently diagnosed. They go, yeah. here, meet Mark. Um, and, you know, I've met quite a few people that have come through the system, uh, double mastectomy uh, survivors. And I said, well, so what are you doing you know, with your diet, what are you doing with uh, strength and condition? Nothing, nothing. And what does your oncologist tell you? Nothing. They tell me not to lift more than five pounds. And I said, you know, I have this friend that did a, did a study down there with the, the breast cancer survivors, and they had this program of strength and mm -hmm. movement. And it's just, it's not there anymore. Yeah. I mean, how is it, how do, I guess, how is it that the results you came up with weren't convincing enough that they say, let's do this? It's funny, really. And you laugh at it because the, the James put out their, uh, their stats, not to rip on the James, but I think they're like two billion plus profit, you know, company. Right. And again, you'll hear Steve Clinton is our prostate oncologist and he, he regularly kind of spouse's exercise because he's like they're willing to dump 500 grand into a new hormonal therapy or line of chemo that will maybe extend life by a couple of months but that same 500 grand could fund and run an exercise physiology clinic for years sure and the salary of vps so 
I think we have a long way to go into appreciating the value of it. The the funding just isn't there in terms of how much that value they put on us as physiologists. You know what I mean? I I don't have. <laughs> I wish I had the answer. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. I don't think it's a case of convincing. I think oncologists do appreciate the value of exercise, but if you go back to Alison Bethoff, who I had on a few weeks ago, she had a really good perspective in, well, you're saying let's treat it like a drug. We also need to know toxicity. We need to know is there an upper limit? And it's not just like cardiac rehab, where um, most types of cardiac events can generally benefit from exercise. There may be forms of cancer that exercise is harmful, or too much exercise facilitates some sort of maladaptation. So they're kind of saying, you know, we understand and appreciate the value of it, but to instill it as a part of care, there's still some questions that we need to answer in terms of tumor biology and things like that. So there's kind of like a multi-pronged approach in policy change, getting funded by third-party payers, who's going to fund it in terms of the hospital, and then kind of micro-environment type work as well, I think is important. Yeah, I, you know, I hear what you're saying. I know you're not <laughs> defending that, but it's interesting. You, you gave a talk at the James, I don't know, is it a year and a half ago? Yeah, maybe? it was a while ago, yeah. And uh, I was sitting next to this woman that I'd never met, and she's holding the program in front of her. She turned to me and she said, you know, this, uh, this program says that this is a comprehensive cancer care hospital. And, and she, she was like, she raised her hand, she said, shouldn't they take the word comprehensive off of this? Yeah. You know, that's the, the thing that, that makes me crazy is that, um, you know, you're talking about toxicity and you're talking about testing and you're talking about policy, but it's sort of like we know this is good for people, you know, better nutrition, movement, strength, um, cardiovascular fitness. Um, and we're not talking about getting a new drug through the FDA and their strict guidelines. Um, it's almost like we need guys in their basements tinkering with this and let's just do it. Let's get an oncologist that just said, we're gonna do this um, and we'll, we'll have some results as opposed to we need to have a, a thousand studies and peer review. See, that's, see, I don't come from a science background like you two and you know, obviously I'm a cancer survivor and there's 18 million of us in the U.S. that really don't want to wait mm -hmm. for, <laughs> the nicest way I could say it, the bean counters to figure out <laughs> that if people move after their chemotherapy, they can get less chemotherapy. Yeah. It saves you some money. Um, that this whole idea of quality of life is, should be the standard not quantity of life, um, that when an oncologist says to you, um, I'll treat you, and you say to him, you know, you, first of all, you say, well, what can I do? And he'll say, no, I'll treat you. That's not the way it should be. The way it should be is, I'll be your partner in your life's journey. We're going to go down this road together. You have to do your part, patient. I'm going to do my part. I'll do the medicine part. You do the living part, which can include, you know, everything from exercise and nutrition to the psycho-oncology part of it uh, to, you know, sleep therapy. All these things that we know work, but they're not part of 
peer review, thousand papers, <laughs> stuff that you know that students do and teachers do, and it just makes me a little nutty uh, that everybody you talk to is like, "Look at what we're doing. This is great stuff." But you know, um, I call it, and I'm, maybe it's not the right term, but it, the, the 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 pharmaceutical industrial complex. Uh, that just says, yes, we'll treat you because yeah. we're the pharmaceutical industrial complex. Um, <laughs> we even have commercials during the Super Bowl hmm. for cancer drugs, which is nutty. Yeah. Um, as opposed to, you know, when we hear these things about 50% um, of the uh, major four cancers uh, are 50% preventable um, by lifestyle change. Well, we wouldn't have so many survivors or cancer patients if we just had lifestyle changes, and we wouldn't have to treat half of the people. Yeah. I mean, it's just bang your head against the wall time. Yeah. I mean, you'll appreciate this, Chris. I mean, the four, we notice the, the strict researchers, oral one-level researchers, get so myopic in, i got to publish this study to get this grant to publish this study to get, and it's, it's a vicious cycle without appreciating stepping back in the bigger picture of, putting this into a community and that's where reach come from is is that same frustration in doing this as you know it's only been eight years but every single time i talk to someone they're like that makes sense mm. and we're missing out so many people in the interim but then you speak to hospitals and physicians and everyone's so busy everyone's afraid to step back and go well let's see what this works there are some some kind of movers and shakers are starting to do this as rogue physicians or or exercise physiologists or whatever but it's still it's going to take a lot of people to go you know you look at even in the exercise oncology world someone studying heart function someone studying muscle function someone studying cachexia without all of us going we're all trying to do the same thing let's collaborate and see what we can do um but also going back to your point on on the commercials i was fascinated when i first came to the states in um we don't get told talk to your doctor about this this prescription or talk to your doctor about this type of medication. It's just not done. I think the States and maybe Australia, one other country in the world is allowed to have commercials like that. Um, and I'm sure you see it when you go to Italy all the time. Yeah. There's no fast food joints really. Every, like Meals are family oriented and, and the, the culture, a lot of more people walk, the environment's more conducive to healthy behaviors. All that stuff plays a role. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, that's how I got interested in those things was just, uh, there was a, an interesting paper, and I should have it committed to memory, but is a graphic that I use in every class, and it sort of shows um, the potential for behavior change if the environment is set up in the right way. And, and um, whether that's the physical environment being, you know, access to, 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 to healthy food or um, just set up so that walking is the easy and, and best option, um, or the culture or social environment. I mean, there are there's a lot to be said for, you know, what the expectation is related to how and what you eat and those kinds of things. So I became interested in those because they felt like such barriers to behavior change. I mean, here, when I was here, at, I was studying, you know, a, a psychological model of behavior change. And, um, and it was really interesting, but I think always my, my biggest interest was in um, this, what you're just talking about, the, the environment we're in. And so if we're in an environment where um, we're asked to 
the wording on a lot of those pharmaceutical commercials is when this does when exercise doesn't work yeah right yeah. or when diet and exercise don't work that's especially with the you know heart disease and cholesterol drugs and why is it not if and why you know i mean it's it's it's, it's hard to watch and then um and then yeah go in and ask your doctor about um whatever drug it is it's it's bizarre but it's part of the the system that i think we heard about in the class which is um here's a problem, let's fix the problem, um, problem is fixed, and um, is it the right problem, is it the right fix? Those are not questions that we're, that we're asking, so. Yeah, I mean, you talk about the environment. I'm sure, I don't know if you saw going around on Twitter uh, last week, the big uproar over um, a company in the UK had uh, a warning against obesity causing cancer, and they had like a couple of letters were missing and they're kind of fill in the blanks, what is a risk factor for cancer? And obesity was the answer. Uproar about fat shaming and, and how dare you. And this is the national governing body for cancer saying, listen, you are not your fat, but having excess body weight causes these physiological changes that increase your risk of cancer. And instead of people going, you know, maybe you're right. They go, F you, who are you to tell me that I have to be a certain body weight? <laughs> like, we're not telling you anything, we're just saying you're at an increase in risk. But, you know, I, I don't have a car, and it is very hard to not have a car in the United States. I grew up without a car in, in Ireland, and public transport was great. Everywhere, I mean, my, my local mall, my um, school, was all within a two-mile walk. So I'm getting everywhere within 30 minutes. And it was just generally accepted, you know what I mean? Whereas here, you live so far away from everything. I mean, I, I still have, I live two miles away in, in Grandview on a walk, and people think I'm a head case, you know what I mean? Like, you just don't <laughs> see people walking around. The sidewalks aren't there, you talk about environment. But not that we have it easier, but Europeans, the size of the country, how they're laid out in terms of environment. <laughs> drive through banks. I mean, give me drive through banks. The amount of times I see, <laughs> I could go in and make six deposits and come back out, and the person's still sitting fourth in line waiting to drop it off their deposit. It, it's just we have it easier and that we can be less mindful about nutrition habits and um, eat and activity habits because they're ingrained in our culture. We walk everywhere more active inherently. You know, obesity is on the rise globally, but in general, I think, you know, we don't have fast food restaurants. We have maybe McDonald's, Burger King and Subway, but for the most, they're like locally owned restaurants. The food quality is high. We don't eat out every single meal, you know what I mean? I can be mindful at home and throw a lot of eggs into a pan, but it's still gonna be way under you go to IHOP and have eggs and pancakes and all that stuff. It just, the, the environment and it's just so mindless of just gross consumption and and then you're working a sedentary job and you go home and you're sitting watching TV all day. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I think that too, there's this cycle of like physical and cultural and social cultural environment that feed each other. So as soon as we, design cities they used to be mixed-use design and what you're talking about right so your your store is on the way home when you're walking from your job to, to home um, we moved away from that into into zoning laws and things where you know residential zoning commercial zoning and um, so to do that we had to create drivable spaces and parking and all of that which meant we needed um, we weren't going to walk there which means we're only going to go once a week to the store yeah. so to go once a week i can load up on um, as many things as I can, especially things that are going to last longer than a week, which means they're not terribly high quality. Bags and bags of stuff, drive it home. Those are successful. We get economies of scale. I mean, it just like it feeds itself, and then that's the norm. So 
Um, that is a big difference that I noticed too in Italy, not that there aren't um, sort of grocery supermarkets on the periphery with big parking lots and stuff, but there's still a more frequent shopping. There's still, you know, uh, the ability to, to stop by on the walk home and get a few yeah. things to make. And so I think all of that stuff plays a role, but then, um, uh, yeah, I mean, then you, so then bring into the question of, of someone who doesn't have access to a car. I mean, you don't have one, but also people just don't have a lot of income. How much food can they carry on yeah. a bus to get home in that hour trip? And then, um, how often will they do that? It's no wonder that we have such a strange problem of food abundance and food insecurity at the same time. So, yeah, anyway, I could go on and on about that, and it's not as related yeah. to the topic well, here, uh, but it it's, is. It's you know. important because I think um, we don't address it enough in, in, we can say structural exercise all day, but again, the big picture, the overall life. I mean, they even have that click list or whatever it's called now yeah. at, at Kroger where you you pick everything out what you want and it saves your order so if you shop the same things every week you don't even have to go into the store they bring it out to your car so we've amazon we've got kroger click click list you're just everything that's activity is just being reduced to to nothing so again it's it's no one really kind of thinks about the implications of these but environmentally we're just reducing ourselves to completely sedentary well and one of my biggest concerns with that is that i feel like these are still the these community shared spaces where we connect with people and i think that um i'm not sure what we're doing with that extra time but it probably isn't social connection so from a quality of life perspective again these are just not great things for society to be doing as a uh, when it relates to your health if yeah. you think of health writ large which is your social and physical and, and whatever health. So you can yeah. see all these, I think it was this realization of all of this interconnected web of, Hey, the, the, uh, the, the, the community planner, that's a health professional yeah. in a weird way, that person and their decisions and all that go into them affects our health every day. And, um, we're seeing more of that at the public health level. Those people are being asked to be part of the discussion when it comes to reducing obesity or to doing those things, but it's only recently that yeah. that's been happening. Both Chris and I are on this committee uh, at Tufts University, and it's the Nutritional Needs of Cancer Survivors um, that was formed, I don't know, a year and a half ago? Yeah, something like that. Um, and it's interesting because everything that we talk about with this committee, because we have physicians and nurses and nurse practitioners and health professionals, and um, but everything we talk about, it seems to parallel uh, the exercise uh, physiology um, component that you're talking about on your show, but all the discussions, I mean, let me start at the beginning. Uh, the, the assumption here in the studies show that a person that is diagnosed with cancer has a worse diet than before they were diagnosed. Probably the answer to that is because they don't have time, you know, they, they have this pie chart of their life and now this big chunk is treatment and doctor's visits and chemo and radiation, uh, or they're tired or whatever. There's just a, they, they, they cut out nutrition mm -hmm. as a priority. And so the, the nutrition of cancer survivors on average is worse than before they were diagnosed. And that doesn't even, you know, whether they had a good diet, now it's worse, or whether they had a bad diet, and it's, and it's even worse. Uh, so we, we got on this committee and I'll let Chris talk a little bit about what we find and the frustrations of that. Yeah, I think we can go back and forth about that. I mean, so this, this 
committee has spurred a different focus in the qualitative research class this time around because my concern is that while we can promote um, nutrition for cancer survivors um, and we can even know what the barriers might be, time, um, fatigue, taste changes, all these things, I still don't know what that looks like for you. Like when you say time, what part of time? Like what is not, I'm not trying to get like philosophical, but like for you, what does a lack of time look yeah. like? Like what is that barrier? Because um, that could be related to the doctor's appointments or whatever, or it could be completely different than that. And it's probably different than what it, because time is always the barrier mm -hmm. for exercise or nutrition. People, if they have cancer or not, will say I don't have time. So yeah. um, <clears throat> what I want to do this this class is to is to bring in cancer survivors and really not even start there, but say, do you do you even what do you think about the role of nutrition and yeah. cancer survivorship? And what do you what do you understand about that? And um, have you tried to make changes? What kinds of things were hard about that? What was that experience like? And and maybe projecting forward if you could do it differently, what resources would be available? Yeah. That's those are questions that I think we're jumping past in, in sometimes and and providing recommendations for people. You should eat these things, you know, lots of whole grains, lots of fruits and vegetables, whatever. Um, and forgetting to talk about, you know, cultural food preferences and cost mm -hmm. and time and all these other things, and specifically what those look like for um, a cancer survivor. So I've been interested in making sure that that part is, is represented in this project, and I think our class can add something to that. Um, because I may, I may come up with a solution for Mark's problem of time with food, and it could be – I didn't ever ask him what yeah. – if that was the barrier yeah. that he was really thinking about. So um, – so I think that project is uh, what's happening now is that um, <clears throat> people, we're, we're pulling together what are the, some of the most solid recommendations for um, people, particularly post-treatment, because I think during treatment, that's a, a slightly different question, although I think some of the same nutritional recommendations would hold. There's some more interaction stuff and things like yeah. that that would happen. But for cancer survivors who've completed their course of treatment, um, their diet is still poor, and in fact, we just talked about 40 minutes ago that there's, this is a tough time for them. They're not having, you know, the, the care yeah. that they've been having. So how can we provide nutritional recommendations that work for people um, at that level? And so there's a lot of debate about the very general things, eat more whole grains, eat more fruits and vegetables. There are, there are voices in this saying, no, we need to, it needs to go further than that. Eat, yeah. don't eat these foods, eat these foods. These are, you know, but everyone is often afraid to do that because of offending a, a segment of yeah. the market or something like that. Yeah. But, but we have some good people who, who have some strong voices about that. The cultural piece is fascinating to me. Obviously, from myself being from a different culture and kind of coming into the States, but also within the States, you know, I lived in the deep south with, in Georgia and Kentucky and now up here into the Midwest. The podcast is listened to in Canada, Australia, England, European countries, um, all which have different cultural pre preferences. I remember I was 23, 24, personal training this Italian dude, and he used to have every morning, he, um, I can only say it's analogous to kind of like a biscotti or whatever. Um, he was like, my morning ritual is I get up, I have my coffee, I read the paper, and I have two of these biscotti things. And me as an ignorant 23 year old, I was like, no man, you gotta cut out the carbs, you gotta do this. And he was like, listen, like I'm, I'm 56, this is a part of my life that I really enjoy. You're not going to get me to change <laughs> right. this, you know what I mean? And it's not about us making you fit us. It's making 
these small changes that are conducive to your lifestyle. And too mm. often we do it, make the mistake with exercise and nutrition going, make all these changes. Mm. And they're going, well, I gotta make all, I'm not gonna make all those changes, so I won't make any. Instead of, well, let's make a small change here, mm -hmm. see how that feels, and then we'll make another small change down the road as you become adapted to it. I think yeah. it's really important. Yeah, we, little things like, uh, you know, big, little things can be key to changing your diet that aren't necessarily related to the food you're choosing. Um, they're related, but they're not the food you're choosing, like planning your meals is mm -hmm. a big piece, right? So, um, but often when we're working with people in the community on nutrition and we talk about meal planning, um, they feel overwhelmed. And I always make the point that, well, what if this week you just tried to plan one meal mm -hmm. uh, and see how it goes and what was hard about that? And then let's talk about it. And um, that's a basic behavior change principle. But I think you humans just decide like it has to be all or nothing yeah. and need to be reminded that sometimes it's all right to test something out and see if it works or not. You know, I think that's back to your point there. Yeah. And I think what I've noticed more and more is that we as exercise professionals or health professionals, whatever, make the mistake of uh, forgetting how much we know. Mm -hmm. We had a, a prostate cancer patient at trial a few years ago who was a diabetic, didn't know what a carbohydrate was, didn't know how to identify a carbohydrate, which plays such a vital role in diabetes management. So we kind of try out carbs, fats, proteins and change the diet and change this without kind of going, well, where is your level of knowledge and interpretation at? And let me come to you with it. We can't give the same face value recommendations to everyone. Again, I get back to this, but everybody needs something. Yeah. And, you know, 99% of us cancer survivors are getting nothing. You know, the, the mm. class, the finding of the class was, as Chris said, highlighted, is the, the trauma of diagnosis paled in comparison to the trauma of, okay, you're done with chemo, you're done with seniors, Please. you're done. And everyone just said that explosion, when you're done with treatment, goodbye, thank you, we won't see you again, was the worst day of the cancer survivor's life. Um, so though that, <laughs> you know, so few people are, are getting care post-treatment uh, that it, you know, it just, head just it starts to explode thinking about <laughs> all the people that I've met um, you know I've been a, a mentor through um, the HOPE program here at the James and Friends for Life in Louisville and then Immerman's Angels in Chicago and I'm just meeting all these survivors that are calling for help and um, you know they're out there on their own yeah. in the desert and it's it just it makes me a little crazy that they're just not dealt with. And, and I don't know, maybe it's the breakdown of community, maybe because yeah. we're in our cars and we don't have extended families. You know, your grandmother isn't living with you anymore. You know, grandmother, mother, child, um, or you don't see your in-laws all yeah. the time, or you don't have a circle of really close friends. Um, maybe that isolation is part of it, but um, there's a lot of, of survivors that need a lot of services. So let me put this question to you then. If you're the head of the James in terms of all policies and care with limited financial, limited, with a, a, a limited budget, um, <laughs> quote unquote, what, what is, do you think one of the most important things is, is it, do we go all in on psychology? Do we go all in on mm -hmm. exercise or do we kind of go a little bit of everything 
you know, what do you what do you think in terms? We talk about changes. Yeah, we, down the road we want to see psychologists, nutri registered dietitian, exercise physiologists. What do you think are some small changes that are feasible now? Right. Well, that's a good question. I think that it's one of these things where survivors, at least I'm getting the idea that we have to do it ourselves. And so I'm not saying ignore the hospitals, but I'm saying get the hospitals to ask survivors to guide the next person that's being diagnosed. Um, they do it bit by bit, but um, kind of bring people into the community. You know, when I, I meet with, I have, I think about eight or nine mentees right now. I don't say to them, okay, I want you to meditate for 25 minutes yeah. a day, and I want you to run a 5K, and I want you to, um, you know, change your diet. But, I, you know, we talk about moving a little bit, and we talking about, you know, one guy was going yesterday, a good friend of mine now that I met about a month ago. He was going to get the blood test results yesterday, and I just said, do something for me. Take three long, slow breaths. And he, you know, he called me and he said, yeah, that really worked. <laughs> yeah. So it's like when you say, what, what should you do? You need to implement these in conjunction with your oncologist. Have him on board. Yeah, I think you should. Here's your friend. Yeah. Here's your friends. Here's your group. Uh, here's your community. You know, there's enough of us survivors around here that we can kind of huddle around folks and move a little bit, talk a little bit for your yeah. psychology uh share some meals, um, and have the doctor, oncologist part of that and, and uh, emphasizing the importance of that as opposed to what you hear now, which drives me crazy. Oh, when you get sick, we'll treat you. Yeah. When you get depressed, we'll give you a pill. Um, when you have pain, we'll give you another pill. That's not the answer. It has to be more of a, of a mind-body thing and a partnership. Um, so I would do that. I would expand the amount of mentors. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So you, you found me through uh, Ken Martin. Correct. Where did you look online for information? Was social media an important part, you know, Twitter, Instagram, or anything like that? Or was it strictly National Cancer Institute, American Cancer Institute? Where did you go for information about exercise, diet, whatever it was? It was uh, Mr. Google. <laughs> um, but the problem with that, and I, uh, because I have no scientific background, is that you, m my oncologist initially um, said, whatever you do, don't Google your disease. What's the date today? It's the ninth. So, oh, tomorrow is four-year anniversary of my diagnosis. And he said that day, whatever you do, don't Google it. Um, and I'm glad I didn't because the information is terrifying yeah. and scary and the photos and the, and the, and the survival rates are insane. Um, so I didn't. Um, but then, you know, a year out when I'm walking again and, and moving, um, and, I, and I had this thing in my brain about um, exercise and, you know, I want to get back on the bike and do this stuff. So I started looking. But wading through yeah. shysters <laughs> people that are have cures for you mm -hmm. and crazy stuff out there is in, almost impossible to get clean good information uh, i stumbled into ken martin i don't know how 
mm-hmm. um, luckily. And then he kind of hooked me up with you and, and, and a couple other really good exercise oncology folks. Uh, but, you know, the information out there is horrible. It's messy. And then, you know, if you go to the American Cancer Society, um, there's a really big, broad brush there. Or even the um, Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, there's, there's some big, broad brushes. And so it's not detailed enough. Um, so it's really difficult. Um, it's really difficult for good information. Well, I think that, and we heard that from um, some of the, like the physical therapists and other people at the James too, especially those related to survivorship from the director is that um, they can only do so much for a couple of reasons. One, there's just the funding support for survivorship is not what it is for treatment. And then two, um, a lot of people come to, this is a regional center. So, you know, they're coming from West Virginia, which you mentioned before, or, or other areas for treatment, they can't come back. The only survivorship support they can give is right here at the James. So in a different model, where you're investing in survivors and in some training and some um, ability of for them to triage what people need and what resources are available. That's a pretty interesting uh, way to invest money. Uh, if you go back to the idea of survivorship as craft, I'm sort of stuck on this right now, but uh, you've got, um, you don't enter your apprenticeship for that craft until you're released from treatment. Up until that point, you're not that big of a player. Maybe you get asked if you'd rather have this treatment or that, but mostly you're taken care of. But then at that point, instead of an apprenticeship, you're just released into the world. Imagine if we did all of our training of people that way, you know, well, good luck. Uh, (laughs) You're going to be an accountant. You're going to be a, like whatever, I hope you can figure it out. You would go and find other accountants and see how they did it. This is exactly what survivors are doing right now. We're not giving them that support to, 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 um, craft that life like whatever it is that they actually want to do um there's just virtually no support for that so um that being said the survivorship people are fantastic they have amazing ideas i'm sure they have better ideas than i could generate in 10 years of sitting here thinking of it they just don't have they don't have the institutional support well in in it we're still beating on the James here, but over at the James, the survivorship... It's just as well I'm leaving because they would have kicked me out anyway. No, the survivorship clinic has some fantastic, dedicated people, but that clinic has no budget. They have to borrow from uh, prostate folks and the lung folks and the breast folks, which is just amazing, you know? And so they don't have enough people. They don't have their own budget which means obviously they are not a priority Mm -hmm. when you talk about the boardroom and those nameless faceless bean counters um that in you know that revenge movie um oh never mind man you're too old to be talking (laughs) (laughs) but yeah i I, yeah i think that that we heard that loud and clear from from them that, uh, you know, we've got great ideas and and we're sitting here saying like, there's 18 million survivors, they want better quality of life. Um, It feels like, you know, insurance investment. I'm not sure where the, where that, where that lever turns, but certainly in other fields. So if you compare like dietitians and physical therapists, physical therapists are billable and, and you can get physical therapy for quite a while as a cancer survivor, you might get one consultation with a dietitian, and then um, 
but if for some reason that lever shifted and you could get repeated consultations with that, that then that would shift that. So right now, a lot of the what's done um, hinges on what our insurance coverage kind of looks like. So and yeah. you mentioned Australia where you can get an exercise physiology visit. I'm sure you can't get that here. Yeah. Yeah. So it also brings up a good point we had at our um, last ACSM meeting. The special interest group was talking about this. How do we move forward? And there was also we kind of sat back and go, well, the field of exercise oncology is 40 years old, maybe. Like the first study was published in 86, something like that. So really, we've made a lot of progression in that time, in the awareness, in the understanding of what it is. So maybe it's a case of when we kind of make the analogy to cardiac rehab, maybe we're just 15 plus years behind them. Maybe it will start to steamroll as, you know, it wasn't too long ago to where people were like, heart attack, bed rest. Right. You know, so maybe we are getting there. And I know it's frustrating to feel like we're leaving a lot of people behind, but there are been a lot of positive steps made. There's a lot of collaborations with, with you know, for we have breast, prostate, and head and neck cancer uh, oncologists all on board with exercise, on exercise trials. So there is progress. It's just not as quick as we'd like it, and the translation is still lacking. Sure. I, the, the, the guest you had on from Australia, your last podcast. Prue, yeah. You know, she talked about how, how you said, how did you do this? And she, she said, well, we, we got the oncologist working out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And then she didn't need studies. They just kind of used their intuition. Oh, this exercise makes me feel better. I feel stronger. I, re I sleep better. Uh, I'm brighter. I'm clearer. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. I mean. We, we do. We have an ongoing study looking at that, like the fitness levels of oncologists and, and the anthropometrics, the body comp and how much they prescribe exercise. Mm. But anecdotally, I can tell you, um, I'll give you a contrast of two oncologists I work with. Uh, one's MD, PhD, super intelligent guy. Um, and the way he talks about exercise, like, yeah, we, you know, we have this trial, you might want to be interested in it. The other guy, you know, similar background, but he is a personal trainer that he works out with three times a week. And the way he speaks to his patients is, this is a part of your care. You're gonna go and meet with this person and they're gonna help you. So just alone, you know, they're both saying the same thing, but how they're delivering it and the value they put on it is really sure. important too. Mm -hmm. The less fit guy is gonna go, yeah, it might work, you know, exercise has value, versus the guy who feels it every day and goes, listen, this can help you, you're gonna go meet with this person. Uh, cancer patients put so much trust in oncologists, so they have a huge role in playing uh, how much they value it and how much they buy into it. I think guidelines and, and recommendations are meant to be translated, but um, translating it to the patient as an oncologist is a lot easier if you're immersed in it too, like languages, right? And so, yeah. you know, he, he's, he's, he's active or exercising. So that was genius really to get the, as a, as a way to promote exercise, to get the oncologist exercising allows them to not just speak of it as they'd speak of anything, but to like personal sort of translation of that yeah. meaning for them is probably critical. So, um, yeah, I mean the most compelling quacks out there are compelling because they have great translation skills right yeah, they'll, they'll yeah. tell you this thing is amazing do it and, and and people will follow even if there's no evidence so we would like to get the evidence-based people to be really good at that too yeah 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 that's <laughs> that's another conversation <laughs> yeah, for, take sure. A lot more. for sure first of all thanks for having us and thanks for what you said about the class i mean um, i've found that that class i learn more um every time i do it and the people that we bring in uh, 
in some ways a selfish class because I, I feel like I'm the one getting the most out of that class. So to know that it had any impact uh, for you was, is great. I think the power of stories, what you're doing here, um, you know, we may not call it qualitative research, but you're making change happen. I mean, you're, and you're getting stories to do that. I think it's, it's its own form of really important stuff. Um, and uh, so I appreciate the, getting the chance to talk about the stuff we've been doing with you. It's been cool. I, you know, I get to sit down in class and act like I know what I'm talking about. Uh, but these kids, you know, they're 19, 18, 19, 20 maybe, um, who know really nothing about cancer. Um, the first class, I just remember uh, they got really mad. You know, the, after hearing from survivors and oncologists and you, like, well, no, this isn't right. You know, this cancer survivorship experience shouldn't be like this. And they really got ticked off, mm -hmm. um, which is great to light a fire under them because, you know, they're going, 20-year-old, you're indestructible. That's why we send them to war. Um, but they kind of see the fragility of life, and they kind of see uh, these changes that need to be made, um, you know. Uh, and I think lighting a fire under them um, can be this next generation. You know, I, I don't have the time to wait <laughs> for another generation <laughs> uh, to, to help cancer survivors and, you know, the people that are diagnosed every day. But if we can keep lighting fires under some of these kids in health and human kinetics and some of them that will go on to be physical therapists and MDs and um, maybe we have a revolution in thought uh, and process and as opposed to medicine being reactive we get a little more proactive and have more collaboration and we if we do that we'll have healthier longer better lived survivors I wouldn't have said it better nice work hey lads I really appreciate it it was Thank a great you. chat I mean we could sit here and chat all day but I won't bore our listeners anymore <laughs> <laughs> um, so listen I really appreciate you stopping by and uh well, best of luck with everything. I'm sure we'll we'll do another episode down the line. Cool. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.